Hey, friends of Mormon Expression, this is your pal John, and I'd like to invite you to a special event. On August 6, 2010, we will be holding our first annual live podcast and reception. It will be in Salt Lake City, and we'll let you know the venue here in a few weeks. The doors open at 6.30, the recording will begin at 7, and the reception will follow with tasty refreshments. The admission price is affordable, and all proceeds go to help fund the podcast and our miscellaneous expenses for the next year. You can go over to our website, mormonexpression.com, and find all the event details by clicking the link in the top right-hand corner. We hope to see you there. Uh, Make sure to reserve your tickets early because there is a limited number of seats available and we're sure it's going to fill up. It'll be a great time to come meet other like-minded individuals and meet the faces behind the voices on the podcast. We hope to see you there. Okay, everybody, welcome to our conference episodes. Uh, For those of you who haven't heard one before, let me make sure you understand what's about to happen. What I've done is I've commissioned uh, five teams uh, to listen to each session of conference. Right after conference, about an hour after the session for each of them, we will get together and record our review of that particular session. So what you're about to hear um, over uh, these next podcasts is the... um, semi or nearly live commentary from each of our tiger teams Uh, so take it for what it's worth i hope you enjoy and and here it goes all right we're here with our first group for the uh, first session which which just ended about an hour ago Uh, there's going to be four of us this time and i'll we'll go around the room and kind of introduce ourselves briefly Uh, first up we have uh, russ hey i'm russ uh, from salt lake city Salt Lake City. Wonderful. Welcome. And we have one of our um, uh, returning individuals, uh, Bridget. Hey, Bridget. Hi there, John. Good to be back. And I'm from Chicago. Now, at one time you were from Provo, right? Or would you ever claim Provo as home? I went to college there, BYU. (laughs) But uh, I'm actually in Seattle right now, though, visiting my father. So, uh, um, yeah, I, I live in Chicago normally, though. Okay, and uh, lastly, we have Gardner. Hi, this is Gardner. I'm here in the heart of Zion as well in Downfall, Utah. All right, it's nice to have the home front. Uh, we're usually uh, scattered uh, here and abroad, and, and Utah voice isn't always heard. Tom, but he, you know, he doesn't contribute very much. So, all right. Yeah. Um, so this is the first session. Uh, it was uh, this is the 180th annual. I always get them confused. The annual is in the uh, spring, and the semi-annual is in the fall, I believe. Um, and uh, Brother Uchtdorf was conducting this session. And every- He's the cute one. <laughs> <laughs> He's the one that all the Mormon women have a crush on if they were allowed to have crushes on GAs. Okay, I'm just kidding around. He, he's got executive hair, that's for sure. For a guy his age, he is pretty good looking. How, how, how old is he? I don't know, but uh, he's not my age, so yeah. <laughs> too old for me. 
Yeah, I mean, if he asked me out, I wouldn't say no. Um, but you know, he's, he's got a very nice speaking voice too. Yeah, yeah, he he was a good catch for him. I I uh, I'm always impressed with him and and uh, what he has to say. Yeah, uh, I generally like Uktor. And everybody seemed to be in pretty good health this session. Uh, first up was uh, Brother Monson, and he spoke briefly. Um, and you know, he started out with the what I consider the theme of the conference, which is the world is a big scary place. Um, <laughs> Uh, and he 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 actually started out also saying he emphasized the growth of the church. You know, he gave the obligatory member count. Um, I, the uh, actual statistics are going to come later in this conference session. But um, so he, and he he was rather upbeat. I really enjoyed his talk, especially where he went off script. Yeah, that was really uh, interesting. Where he was talking about his wife and their relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've said many times before that. When you can hear the general authorities when they're not speaking to, you know, big groups, like when they're in state conference or when they're in general conference, they get very stilted. And I think they're very, they're very cautious about what they're saying. But when you actually hear them talk, you know, the thing that got them in that position in the first place, they tend to be very warm, very engaging, uh, very intellectual. And we, we got to see that from, from Brother Monson. So I enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. Though apparently he's saying he's going to uh, be lectured now by his wife after for the fact, but he was kind of joking about that and how she didn't want him to really talk about that. But yeah, was, yeah, yeah, it was it was nice to see him kind of open up that way. And let's see, following Brother Monson, the first talk was by uh, Brother Boyd Packer of the uh, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. And um, he's getting up there. Uh, he he was sitting down again for this session, and um, he seemed to have either a tremor or he was shuffling his mic around quite a bit. I, I'm not sure what that was. I wasn't watching the last conference, but uh, he did not look good, and I'm worried for him. Uh, worried about his health, I guess. I, I can't remember how old he is. I guess I could look it up here. I think he's pushing 90 or... Yeah. I, I, I know he's well into his 80s. It's a born. Yeah, he's around 85, 90, somewhere between there. He was born in 24, so that would make him, yeah, he's, he's getting up there in 80, 86, 87 or something like that. Yeah. Not a spring chicken. Um, his talk was kind of predictable for, for a Packer talk. Um, you know, he, again, he started with the war and conflict. And I noticed, you know, I said earlier, this was a sort of theme throughout this whole session the um, vague sort of enemy is out there at our gates without necessarily defining what the threat was. But that, that was a running theme through everybody's talk. The, the enemy is at the gates. They were especially yeah. emphasizing uh, power of Satan. Uh, he brought it up a lot with uh, the priesthood and how the father was supposed to be like a proxy and a protector over that. And it was just very Packer-esque. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, now, he started in with correlation. Um, and he said something that um, I thought was was spot on true. The whole operating face of the church was changed with correlation. That's absolutely true. You know, if you look at the church pre, you know, in the 50s and all that, and look at the church now, that you know, they're two different things. Um, so he he t he gave um, following his war metaphor. He talked about Gideon's army. You know, the the guys who drank out of the water um, from the Bible, and that uh, the ones who were watchful were the ones who were there. I was kind of surprised that he kind of seemed to be emphasizing the fact that, you know, that church is never, like he said, the Book of Mormon makes it clear we will never dominate in numbers. It seems like, and, you know, that we're kind of 11 and 
um, it almost kind of seemed like he was trying to, I, I don't know, emphasize that we're never going to be that as big as maybe we would hope or anticipate. It was kind of interesting that he kind of emphasized that a lot. You know, I feel like I'm seeing a shift in the church's narrative in that regard. I mean, maybe, this is just me anecdotally, but uh, when I began studying the church 12 years ago, uh, it seemed like everybody was talking, you know, this was the late 90s, the church had just been through a big boom of exponential growth, and everybody was talking about how magnificent the gospel was, that it was growing and expanding at such a strong rate. And I feel like now I'm hearing this narrative from the leaders where they're like, yeah, we're still growing, but you guys need to know that— uh, we're never going to be that big and uh, there's never going to be that many of us. And I have to wonder if they're kind of, um, kind of trying to, what's the word, not damage control, but uh, that they know that the numbers that other people are putting out are not showing that the church is growing at the same rates that the church is claiming. And they're kind of trying to do a little bit of hedging there. And uh, I, I just feel like I'm seeing this shift in the narrative though, that instead of uh, we're big and we're growing and we're expanding, it's yeah, we're still growing, but uh, we're not gonna be that big. So don't expect that. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. I was very surprised when we mentioned that uh, the church is really just a small fraction. And then he even went on to bring up a prophecy of Nephi that said we would be small in these times. But then again, at the end, he made sure that uh, the church will influence humanity, and that's a certain thing that will happen regardless. Yeah, I, I detected a certain um, sort of—I guess the word hubris is a little strong—but that you know, the idea that the the world would all turn to us sort of echoes of the constitution by a thread sort of thinking that that you know the 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 Mormons will be small in number but great in influence was sort of the overriding message. Uh, you know, and he, he a lot of his talk wasn't necessarily dealing with that. He, he spent a lot of time talking about the father's role and father's responsibilities. And I actually liked the message he was giving where he emphasized the the role that the, the parent, of course it was, you know, slated towards males as you would expect, but the role the parent needed to fulfill over the church, you know, because sometimes that church thing takes takes precedence. And he gave some examples that were a little bit surprising for for Packer, you know, talking about battlefield commissions of a, um, if his father hadn't had it, he implied that um, they would just ordain the father to be able to ordain the son, that sort of thing. Uh, but anyway, yeah. the details aside, it was that emphasis on the familial part of the church as opposed to the authority part. And I really like that. Yeah, I thought that was good. I thought it was neat how he said, you know, in the home, the father presides, even if there was a general authority or anyone else that was high in the church there, you know, the father would still be in charge of calling on blessings and other stuff like that. Yeah, he he did slip in. Oh, go ahead, Bridget. Well, I was just going to say what was interesting to me. Now, I, I, you know, I argue about gender in the church a lot, and uh, I studied that a lot. And uh, I get a lot of people trying to argue to me that when the church says that men preside in the home, it doesn't really mean preside. It means stewardship or uh, gentle servant guidance. And I don't know. There's just all we call it chicken patriarchy. Um, me and my feminist <laughs> friends, we call it chicken patriarchy because it wants to be uh, patriarchy and being in charge. But at the same time, it wants to be equality. So uh, right. but uh, I thought that the terms that Boyd Packer used, though, there was very little wiggle room in how he was defining preside. He says in the home, the presiding authority is always invested in the father. And he goes on to describe things that the father's supposed to do. And there's just a there's no question there that he's saying that fathers are supposed to be in charge in the home. There's no chicken patriarchy here. So um, I'll be interested to read the reactions from my more egalitarian-minded LDS friends who don't want the church to be a patriarchal institution. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad, Bridget, that you are scheduled for this session because we got two more coming up with Beck and then, uh, then the, 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 the coup d'etat with Ballard on, uh, on sex issues here. So, yeah, uh, and of course, you know, uh, Packard is known for his unwritten order of things, and he, he goes into that, you know, saying, uh, you know, the, the father presides, and he defined that as saying, at the dinner table, you know, something as, as simple as eating a meal, the man has to be in charge of that, and that's a very Packard-esque thing. Yeah. Okay, why don't we move on to Sister Beck? Um, she, of course, stirred up all kinds of controversy a couple of years ago, about two or three years ago, on her talk on women. And this is kind of a watered-down version of it. Um, mm -hmm. Well, Bridget, why don't I, I'll let yep. you take the first shot at this one, at Beck's talk. <laughs> You know, um, people who follow me and are familiar with me know that I, I have like this list of complaints about the way that the church treats women that uh, uh, kind of upset me because my daughter goes to the church as well as my church. And uh, as far as general conference goes, things that, ups things that I don't like are that uh, women are never invited to do the opening and the closing prayers. Um, the men are addressed as elder and president, while the women are only sister, even when they're the auxiliary presidents. And of course, women only give two talks at general conference for the general sessions. Um, one year they did three, but every other year since like the late 90s, I think they've only done two. And when I first began studying the church, I pointed that out and a friend was like, well, they used to do none of them. So it's really awesome that they do too. <laughs> but, uh, and I also don't like that uh, I complain about this, that uh, I, there's always a man speaking at the female sessions. There's always a man. He usually gives the longest talk, and he's always the last speaker, but there's never a woman speaking to the priesthood. And it just to me, it sends this message that uh, men have wisdom and guidance and direction to impart to women, but women have very little that they get to teach to men and share with men. So those are things. Whenever the church does a general conference address, though, uh, aimed at women, I always kind of cringe a little bit because... Uh, um, I don't really expect it to start, uh, them to start teaching my version of Christian egalitarianism, but, uh, <laughs> if it doesn't have anything in it that's overtly offensive to me, it's a good thing. So, uh, I actually didn't notice a lot in Julie B's Beck's talk though, that I had to complain about, um, you know, things that I usually don't like is when they're uh, defining women in terms of what they can do for men and uh, how they can complete and fulfill men. And I felt like she really tried to set the Relief Society up as kind of a compliment to the priesthood, which would be a step in the right direction for me. And um, one of the things that, I, that she did that I actually really, really liked was she quoted Joel 2, 28 through 29, which is a verse that egalitarian Christians love a lot. And that verse goes, uh, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirits in those days. She quoted from somewhere near that passage. And uh, that was very exciting to me that she would quote that, not because I think that it's a dramatic change for the church, but... Uh, Charismata-based authority is something that women have had the best access to in uh, biblical times and in uh, the church historically and in scripture and things. So I, I think that for the church to start emphasizing that women can have these charismata-based experiences is a step, a very small step in the right direction. So that was actually very exciting to me. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's good. And um, uh, I thought the overall tenor of the talk, though, for me, um, was this standard message it's really really hard for women in the church that you know you don't have to be perfect but you do need to do the things that you need to do and then when they go on to define those things and it's basically the definition of perfection in the church you know yeah. that's um, probably yeah. how i felt I, I i kind of like you said john i felt like it was kind of a watered down version of that other controversial 
uh, I think it was called Women Who Know. Mothers uh, Who Know. Yeah, Mothers Who Know. Is that what it is, Mothers Who Know? Um, and I really felt like she did give a short caveat at the beginning where she says something about, you know, women recognize that there isn't enough time to do all the things they need to do. But then she goes into this huge list of all these <laughs> expectations. I mean, it's kind of like, well, I mean, I don't know. It seems like she didn't really even go into detail on how they're supposed to make any kind of prioritization or anything about recognizing that sometimes you can't do it all, you know. But anyway. Well, expectations for me is a big list of expectations. That's kind of just the LDS church in general for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I, I thought at the end, you know, the last note I wrote was, um, when you do everything perfectly, you'll know you've been successful. You know, she just sort of defined all this, all this stuff and said, you know, well, when, when you're, when you're doing it right, then you'll feel the spirit, then you'll know, then you'll have confirmation. And I know for a lot of women and, and men, I, I mean, I don't mean, um, struggle with sort of a depression in the church because they don't feel that they do all this stuff and they don't feel that, that sense of hey i'm really doing everything great hey i'm i'm really there so they feel like they're not doing and they're not giving themselves credit for what they're doing and if you're in that sort of depressive cycle i don't think this sort of talk would help you out of that probably exactly. not I think, yeah i think uh, a lot of the most of the women who are listening to this are the very type that you described john the type that are really pushing themselves to the point where i think they need more of a you're doing a good job and don't overwhelm yourself, but that's my thought. Yeah, and along the same lines, like she kept saying the phrase, all good women, and then she would list something like, uh, she never faileth, or some other requirement. And it just seemed like, well, that's not really uh, giving them the good job, pat on the back thing we were just talking about, so. All right, um, the next speaker was uh, Bishop Keith McMullen. Um, and uh, he gave an interesting, well, I mean, it wasn't too far remarkable, I guess. Uh, he did use uh, Corey Ten Boom's um, The Hiding Place, uh, which is a novel that came out, I think, in 71 or so. And um, um, she was uh, 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 helped in the underground. Was, was she in Holland? I can't remember where, where she was at. And he used that as an extended metaphor for forgiveness. And I, I thought that was, that was a nice um, usage of literature in, in his talk, I guess. I read it in high yeah, school, so I was I was pleased to hear that. Yeah, so did I. Yeah, that's a that's a great book. I I love that book. I had a lot more spiritual experiences with reading that book than the Book of Mormon. So, so but anyway, so I I liked most of his talk, but at the end he he said something I have to call him out for, and, and not in a bad way. It's just a very very Mormon way of thinking. Um, he he said you had to be guided by the Spirit in prayer, meaning. And he went on to elaborate how there is a right way to pray and that when you're in tune with the Spirit, when you sought the, the guidance of the Spirit, the Spirit will tell you what you should say to God. So, and, and, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll misrepresent uh, the Christian world, so, so uh, um, Bridget, you can come in and correct me if I'm wrong. But for, for, for a lot of Christians, prayer is the way I commune with God. It's, it's, a, it's a conversation between me and God. I'm going to pour out my hot heart to God that, that I can commune with, with, with Him somehow. But this is a very Mormon way of thinking, saying there's a right way to pray. It's not just you trying to communicate with God. You've got to figure out the right way to do it. And I know when I was a member, this was always so, the sort of thing that bothered me. I always never felt like I was doing anything right. And, 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 uh, and I think he, he, he emphasized that. Hey, you can't just pray and talk to God. You've got to do it the right way. 
you know, once when I was at BYU, this is uh, maybe a slight tangent, but once when I was at BYU, I had a supervisor who knew I was Protestant who asked me to uh, give a prayer for our meeting. And uh, after I prayed, I just prayed like a Protestant, know these and thous, you know. And after <laughs> I prayed, he came up and corrected me <laughs> and told me all the things oh, wow. I had done wrong in my prayer. And I, I think that maybe uh, Elder McMullen's talk was a little bit towards that extreme of, uh, you know, any kind of prayer isn't good enough. You've got to do things the right way. So... Uh, yeah, I, I noticed that, too, with the prayer. Is, I mean, that's something that's brought up a lot in Mormonism. It's kind of like you'll get whatever you want to pray for. I mean, you'll get whatever you want in your prayer as long as you want whatever God wants. And, I mean, I, I, I guess that's kind of how it has to be in theology, but it it kind of, I think, kind of demeans the idea of coming with your own personal longings to God in prayer to say, you know, you have to ask what you're told to ask for and i don't know but but yeah that that kind of stuck out to me too okay the next was uh wilford anderson of the 70 um he started with the theme of persecution of the pioneers and then went on to uh i, I didn't really follow the connection but he used that to bridge into haiti um the one th one thing he said that i that i, I noticed he he talked about forming of, of committees in the in the Haitian stuff, and then he said that that was the pattern of the priesthood. So we learned that the committee is actually a uh, heaven-inspired um, pattern of the priesthood. Uh, I think the main thing I got from his talk was the uh, hope does not depend on circumstance but on faith. I mean, that seems kind of the overriding theme in his talk. Um, you know, obviously they were talking as well about kind of the welfare program and the efficiency of doing that, but I, I really also like the fact that he brought up clinical depression. Um, I think so it's good. And, and things like in, we were saying how in Julie Beck's talk, she discussed all these things that you can do to, you know, feel happy and feel fulfilled. And, and, uh, I think it's good when general authorities put in this caveat that there is exceptions to that. And anyway, I, that was something that stuck out to me. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm glad he brought up clinical depression. However, I must chastise him. He immediately backed away from that and then said that for most of us, was was his word, mm -hmm. sadness and fear melt away when we put our trust in the authority of happiness, blah, 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 blah. So he, he, he did acknowledge yeah. it was clinical depression, but he went on and immediately say, for most of you, um, it's not it's not that. It's you just need to, you know, turn to, to, to God or whatever. And I don't have any problem with that per se, but you know, there's people who suffer from depression. And I, I think I always think about those, you know, I have some relatives and some friends who, who do suffer from a lot of depression. I always think about them when I hear these talks and, and how that impacts them. Yeah, I agree. I mean, obviously I think the tendency for most Mormons is to first assume that they're not doing the things right and uh, kind of beat themselves up before they ever get to the point where they consider the possibility that, hey, maybe I have a mental illness or, or something like that, which is very unfortunate and something that I think in the church needs to be addressed more. Well, and, and that's what, that's what not to beat up on him more, but that's what you're implying when you say most of us, our sadness and fear melt away when we put our trust in God. That means I'm sad and fearful because I haven't put trust in God. I'm doing something wrong. The uh, elder um, Russell Ballard uh, was was next, and he gave a very interesting talk. Um, and um, he addressed his to the mothers and daughters of the church. And you know, again, this is sort of the 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 thing you were saying a little bit earlier, Bridget. You, you know, you have the standard white male up here telling women how to be better mothers. 
Um, it was so funny. I, I going back to Boyd K. Packer again. He's uh, he said at one point. I wrote this quote down. He said, "The priesthood will lose great power if the sisters are neglected." <laughs> it was just, it was just such an ironic thing for Boyd K. Packer to be saying, and you know, it's just kind of like position heal thyself. But yeah, uh, yeah, I guess it's pretty normal to have uh, you know men in the LDS Church telling women what to do and what they need to do to improve. But they did have at least one woman in this session also addressing women, so we can't be too hard on them for it. Yeah, uh, but there's still some things I want to be hard on them about. There are a couple things that Boward said. Um, oh yeah. Um, you know, the church often uses the metaphor or the the um i don't know if it's a metaphor or not but you know men have the priesthood and women have motherhood they, they juxtapose those two but he talks a lot about how women are diluting motherhood that women by their own action can can spread that out it, it labors that symbol because you, you don't hear about them talking about men diluting their priesthood you know but you you will hear hear that those things put put aside like they're they're doing it wrong so it's not like that 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 they can be mothers and thus be equal to the priesthood if they don't do it right the way the priesthood tells you to do it you're not going to be on par that was the first my my minor um problem the the, the biggest one i have is i think brother ballard has a big problem with women um and he pulled out some of the old talibanish um feelings about sexuality and women's sexuality here you know the 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 idea that if a woman dresses in a in a way that that a man considers to be immodest that somehow that is on the woman for doing it it's the burqa sort of thinking and and you know he talked about tight clothing and, and all this stuff that that's sending out a wrong message to the brethren um he talked a lot about um that women need to dress so as not to do that. My wife, uh, she she took the kids to the to the, the swimming pool this afternoon, but she wanted me to use the word frumpy. That he wanted the women to dress frumpily because if they don't, if they somehow dress in a way that's attractive, um, that somehow they're they're violating their womanhood. And he went on and on about in, in vague sort of ways about how women out in the world today are crossing these lines without actually defining them. I, I'm not sure what what it is. Is it any expression of of attractiveness, any expression of sexuality? Is that what is that what Brother Ballard's going after? Yeah, and that's part of the problem, that he's so vague as to what he's condemning. Um, I remember I had a huge debate with this Mormon guy who uh, who uh, thought that it was immodest for me to be okay with wearing shirts that have no sleeves. And he was like, you admit to being immodest. And I'm like, no, I'm pro-modesty. I just don't think that sleeveless attire is automatically immodest. And uh, so when they're vague about this and condemning... Uh, uh, women dressing sensually and uh, women dressing immodestly. Well, what's immodest to you is, uh, um, you know, a two-piece swimsuit which covers the butt but shows two inches of stomach. Is that immodest versus a one-piece that totally shows off your entire butt? I mean, what's immodest to you? And uh, what exactly is that you're condemning here? And that's what's so frustrating about this talk that I don't know what exactly he's coming down on because he didn't really give specifics. He was just so vague about what it is, these things that women need to be avoiding. But it, it didn't sound good. I, I agree. And that that's what I was trying to make my first point. You know, he said that womanhood and motherhood in the world is being corrupted and manipulated. How does one corrupt womanhood? You know, you're, you're, you're a woman. That's It's intrinsic. You can't corrupt that. Yeah, and the church teaches that gender is essential. Gender is an essential characteristic. And it's like, if gender is essential, why do you need to police it? Yeah, I think there have been, I mean, I don't ever expect the general authority to ever do this, but I think 
him talking about sexuality the way he was. I mean, I think it almost seemed like he was condemning sexuality in general. And I think it would be nice for a general to acknowledge something like womanhood isn't sexuality, but sexuality is part of womanhood and part of, I mean, manhood. But I don't ever expect that to happen in the general. Yeah, that would be much healthier much healthier yeah, well and, and sexuality is even a little strong i've used that i use that language but all right i mean in case brother boward's listening all right attractiveness between the two sexes comes about by differences between the sexes so men right. generally are attracted to things about women that are different than men so when a woman accentuates her beauty she will oftentimes accentuate her sexual dimorphism Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's sexual, that, that there's some kind of like grossness or immorality going on here. And, yeah, and, I, and that, that thing, that, that message by ex- religious extremists, all of the burqa, gets um, mixed up sometimes. And you have to say, look, just because you're wearing um, clothing that are tighter, because my goodness, men can wear tight clothing, right? I mean, well, you would oh, never shit. hear the same talk delivered at men, but the same thing goes on. Men will dress in a way. You that... want to know what I think men, what turns me on for men? Guys oh, in really oh, nice suits. So, uh, <laughs> is going to start instructing its men to wear sweaty blue track suits from Walmart so that I'm not so attracted to them? Why should I tell my daughter not to wear tank tops? Yeah, and the other last thing I'd say, um, you, you know, he played a lot of stereotypes. You know, like, um, he played on the old stereotype that, well, even if you're not a mother, you're motherly, so you can listen to this. And the other stereotype of gossip, he talked about gossip, you know. You know, it's, it's kind of like men have these concerns, these deep doctrinal concerns, and women have these concerns over here. And at some point, the church is going to wake up and realize everybody's just people. Um, and, you know, we all have the same problems. Well, to his credit, at least, I liked how he uh, said to yourself after your mother or some other good example rather than celebrities and i think that kind of alluded to the idea you know don't let the media define for you what you should be Maybe that's not a document that's yeah that was yeah. definitely good and i i heard that at the young women session earlier last week too that they were encouraging girls to look to their mothers and i think that's great i want my daughter to look up to me so i agree that's a good message yeah. and i think if you look at his first sentence where he's t- he's talking about his daughters chastising him for only talking to the men. Um, I, I think the brethren actually want to fix this. I, I, I think they, but they just, maybe it's just so entrenched that they don't quite know how. You know, it's like somebody who doesn't want to be racist, but every time they open their mouth, they say racist things. Um, I, I think, I think they're, they're moving in the right direction. But I, I think this sort of thing, the, the, the delivery and the cliches and the, you know, it's... Yeah, they could solve it by just having more women talk in conference, you know, like like, yeah. talk better, like, uh, like uh, Bridget said, I look forward to the time when priesthood has a woman speaker. That would be, I'm more excited about going to priesthood. That, that'll be a watershed moment. All right. And yeah. the, the last Who talk. Knows, maybe I'll get lucky this conference. Yeah. 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 That, you never know. <laughs> could, it could happen, I suppose. Uh, the last talk by uh, Brother Henry Eyring of the uh, 12. Um, he also talked about the downward spiral sort of the the theme um talked a lot about working with with youth i you know his talk was sort of just neutral for me i didn't really nothing real exciting nothing real uh um controversial and nothing i heard any and you guys have any i didn't think it was controversial but i i you know i i did kind of feel bothered by the fact that they bring up people who leave the church 
you know, it's always kind of the typical stereotype. He talks about the girl that he counseled with that, you know, it's always sin. It's always they got into, you know, poor decisions that they made. And I would like at some point for the church to acknowledge that there are people who, who leave over honest, uh, you know, feelings about information that they've come across and things like that. But, you know, that's something I don't expect to change either. So. Yeah, the the church can't ever legitimize um, honest apostasy, right? A, a, a church can't acknowledge very well the the apostates who walk away because it messes with their core message. Um, because yeah, you're supposed to be happy in the church. If you walk away and say, I wasn't happy in the church, well, you have to find a reason why that is. Because if you say, yes, you can be happy outside the church, you can't go on saying you, you, we're the source of happiness. You have to contextualize the person leaving somehow. So that they'll, they'll, they'll never do that. But... Yeah, no, and that's that's the thing. I, I realized that, and and so I mean, I noticed that, but at the same time, I like you said, I know that that's something that I can't really change. So all in all, I think a bottom line for me was sort of a, a mediocre session. Uh, the two, you know, a lot of misogyny and a lot of uh, uh, that vague threat from the outside was the was the. That was undefined uh, over and over again. They're, they were talking about something that was undefined. Just like, get on with it. Tell us what what is is about the world today that you guys think is so scary. Because they're always saying how scary it is, but I'm not sure what they're scared of. Yeah. I have a little bit more of an optimistic view of it. I mean, uh, there were definitely parts I didn't like, but there were things that I thought they did well. So hit and miss for me, which is, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, you guys have any other comments to say about the... Uh, first session here um no i mean for me I, almost every conference session is i mean it kind of depends it just um kind of feels like a, i guess a recording of previous sessions but <laughs> but um, but but you know i guess there was some good things like like bridget said i felt like some of the stuff was toned down a little bit like julie beck's comments were toned down from previous sessions and and there were some positive things that I think were taken away, and um, on the whole, pretty good session. Yes, all in all, same here, but I think maybe Sister Back and Elder Ballard should have switched box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been very welcome. <laughs> yeah, I guess you guys are right. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't that bad, and they are getting a little better, I suppose. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's see. Gardner, Russ, Bridget, thanks for uh, uh, helping me dismantle the first session. Welcome to the Saturday afternoon session of Mormon Expression. I'm going to be your guest host, Tom Perry, who's going to be hosting this, uh, this session with our, with our panelists. And we have a wide variety of panelist members with us. Uh, we have Kyle. Kyle, uh, where are you from? I am originally from uh, Colorado, but I'm in Texas now. It's, it's great to be here. Good to have you. And we have Leanna, who was, I think, with us at the last conference. Is that right? Yeah, I was. So where where do you live at now? Are you up in Salt Lake? Is that right? Yes, I am in Salt Lake, in the heart of the valley. Excellent. Good to have you with us. And we have Wes. Yeah, I participated last year, and uh, I'm originally from Portland, Oregon. Now I live in Washington State. Washington State. Excellent. Good to have you guys. We also have uh, Flip Johnson, who is running a little late, but we're hoping to add him a little later. But we're going to go ahead and get started. So this session of conference was, uh, I thought, it, it kind of uh, had some good speakers. Um, it started off with 
with, of course, the sustaining of the officers, and I think there wasn't anything of, too much of noteworthy there. Uh, I think there's a lot of Latino names. Yeah, there there was. Mm-hmm. There was a new general primary president, I think. Uh, yeah, there was a new primary presidency. I tried to get some information on either of those three women. I couldn't find a whole lot on them. So yeah, um, I also noticed a name that I don't know if it's the same person, but one of the uh, area authorities' seventies they sustained was Gifford Nielsen, who was a. Uh, I don't know if that's the same Gifford Nielsen that played for BYU or not, but I thought that was interesting. <laughs> so yeah, great. Played <laughs> okay, so. And as far as the, the statistics, I didn't see anything too um, noteworthy there. I, I guess we're still around the 13 million membership mark. Hey, we're creeping up on 14. How, what was it at? 13.8? Is that right? 13.824. Yeah, so we're almost there. A few more babies and we'll get there. <laughs> um, yeah, there was there was uh, four less missions, which was interesting. But Oh, really? Yes, uh, I checked last year there were 348, and this year there were 344. I don't know what that means, but uh, other than that, most of the stuff was just slight differences, nothing earth-shattering or anything like that. Yeah, and I think there was uh, 51,000 missionaries, and I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. up or down or average. I don't know. It's actually down by just less than 1,000, though. Really? All right, well, let's, let's go ahead and get started. The opening speaker was... Was my man L. Tom, L. Tom Perry from the from the Apostles, um, and he spoke about teaching the gospel in the home. It talked a lot about his mother and the importance of teaching the gospel in the home. Any any uh, interesting thoughts that you guys had about his talk? Um, I noticed uh, at first. I mean, he, he focused on his mother, and then he started talking about just parents in general, which I. Th- which I thought was good, and I thought he was just going to make it more of a required for both parents. But then near the end, he kind of went back and stressed that it was mostly the mother's job. Which that's because the fathers yeah. are usually away at work. So yeah, that's right. He did. exactly. <laughs> so yeah, that was interesting. Um, he did say one thing I noticed was he said something like he's not using his mother as the role model because he acknowledges that we live in different times. I thought that might have been a concession to. Maybe the fact that people live different lifestyles now, I'm not sure. but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, he said, like, the ideal isn't always possible, but it is right. the divine role of women to be in the home and nurturing. So, yeah. I, I don't know. It, <laughs> it felt kind of berating at times. And, you know, if your kids go astray, it's your fault. Mm-hmm. There, there was something, oh, yeah, there was something along the lines of, too, like, if you want to return to the father, you better make sure you teach him good. Almost like a, you know kind of a guilt trip there which was a little disconcerting (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. i i I wasn't overly impressed and i wasn't overly discouraged i i don't know i thought it was okay as far as docs go yeah it wasn't i don't think it was anything that um, unusual i did actually notice though near the end he uh said something about you can't over prepare for a lesson and yeah uh, that contradicted that uh article from the church news a while back saying that you just need to stick to the correlated material so i don't know who's right there but that was interesting just over prepare on the church correlated material read it again and again (laughs) (laughs) maybe that's what he meant then sure (laughs) now the next the next speaker is actually one of the my favorites 
of the session is D. Todd Christofferson from the uh, from the Apostles. He talked about a guy named William Tyndale, and I felt stupid because I didn't really I'm not too familiar about his history, but I guess he he was one of the guys that translated was involved with the translation of the Bible to English back in the 1500s, and he was and he was burned to death because of all that. And then of course his talk talked about the importance of the scriptures and how the scriptures can in, enlarge our memory and and he referred to a lot of uh, scripture stories and stuff like that. Overall, I I just thought it was kind of interesting because it seemed like he was emphasizing taking the scripture stories literal, which kind of rubs me a little bit the wrong way. Yeah, I think he mentioned uh, Noah and the flood, and I wondered if he actually believes that literally happened. But I think I, so. <laughs> it sounded like that to me. It sounded like he believed a lot of the the sure the Red Sea and all that stuff. What do you guys think, Wes? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure he believes all that. Um, he uh, and and they often do this, but they you know he puts all the the Book of Mormon authors right along with the Bible, like yeah. you know, like they're all equal and. You know, I always find that interesting because, you know, there's really no manuscript evidence at all for the Book of Mormon, and we've got like 40,000 manuscripts for the Bible, so that's kind of an interesting <laughs> tactic there. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Book of Mormon later, another guy said that the Book of Mormon was the only scripture that God himself endorsed. Um, yes. But I, I, I thought that was funny. In in this talk, I thought it was interesting because he made an especial point to say that faith doesn't come from archaeology or science, which, you know, is very convenient because if it came from archaeology or science, none of us would believe. <laughs> right. Yeah, I totally picked up on that as well, Leanna. Yeah, I, I noticed that too. Uh, yeah. A couple other things I noticed he, he seemed to imply, or I think he might have actually said that the conference is considered scripture. Uh, yeah, no, I noticed that too. He did. And, yeah. And a big one for me that just stuck out to me, kind of political wise is he actually talked about social justice and when you when you look at the whole glenn beck uh controversy with all that i don't know if he was supporting social justice or not i was confused <laughs> i didn't i didn't get the sense that he was i, I yeah. got the sense that that was kind of you know he, he pitted it against kind of personal righteousness and okay. that, that you know that was much more important than social justice that's how i heard it i think yeah yeah, well, and it's going back to the absolutism. There is no, there is no concessions to be made for individuals. There is no concessions to be made for. I mean, there's just, it's just this absolute obey to the letter of the law. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and one line that he said that that I that I cringed is when he said that there was some believe that there are no need for repentance, just a confession and and <laughs> stuff like that. That was a. I thought that was kind of a jab at the evangelicals or some of the Christian communities that, you know, saved by Jesus kind of thing. I thought that was kind of a, a jab there. Oh, yeah, that was a total jab. He said a simple confession was not enough. Yeah. But that, that didn't really cut it, you know. I, I, I had, yeah, I had a big problem with that, too. Because I, and not, not that I sympathize with the Christians too much, but I don't think that we need to uh, make the divide any bigger. True. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, the next speaker, who was uh, Elder Kochichi, uh, K-O-I-C-H-I-A-O-Y-A-G-I, -I -I. Um, and for me, I, I just didn't think, I wasn't too impressed and I wasn't discouraged, I just thought it was kind of an eh talk. He talked about his background a little bit and how he was converted. Any, do you guys have any? Well, I, 
I, I actually have a comment on this one. Okay. Because oh. it's, you know, those less active members, we just need to invite them back to church. And, you know, I know where the church is. <laughs> and if I wanted to go, I would. Like, a postcard from a member, like, really isn't going to make a difference in my life. And I just feel like it's pushing the members more and more to these, you know, to reactivate the less active, which I, I, I know that the less active don't like that because I'm one of them. Yeah, he made it sound so easy, especially when uh, he says that the postcard that he got ended up he ended up marrying that person. So it's a fairy tale. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a nice uh, little cute story, but it was nice. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's totally how I saw it too. It was kind of the perfect story. Um, mm -hmm. I did have one comment on that too. He he talked about how initially he realized he wasn't praying with all his heart about the Book of Mormon, and then he decided to do that. But then he said, to his surprise, he received confirmation. So I thought that was kind of weird. If he's praying with all his heart, why would he be surprised that the confirmation came? I don't know. Yeah, the, the only thing that I kind of thought, eh, I didn't really like too much was he was talking about, I think, his kids or something, the primary, the emphasis on the follow the prophet song. And, mm -hmm. ah, anyway, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't well, too... <laughs> But, yeah, there was a lot of that in this session because I think there were two or three hymns just about prophets. Maybe I'm remembering wrong, but oh no, you're remembering right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, and I I forgot to mention I get give a shout out to the Utah County Orem Institute Choir that was there. Yeah, shout out to Utah County. <laughs> Can I say something about that real quick? I oh, noticed go ahead. What I actually wrote down was that. For a, a worldwide church, we sure have a lot of diversity. I mean, oh my goodness. I know it's Utah County, but <laughs> I, I mean, everybody looked exactly the same, same skin color and everything. So I just we're, we're just one large family, dude. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then next we had Elder Bruce Carlson from the 70. Um, and his talk, he talked a lot about. Uh, he used a few analogies about a plane and some sportsmen, and um, but mainly I thought it turned into a major obedience talk. And most most strict obedience talks um, kind of make me cringe. He even, I think he even said, uh, "You need to obey even the littlest of commandments." Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That one, I actually wrote down the word "strict obedience" too. I think he might have said those exact words, but. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's going. I mean, because the talk before was kind of just a feel-good, you know, help each it other was. out talk, and then we go into this where it's just like every you need to obey every little tiny commandment, regardless of how hard it is for you. And I, that that one bothered me a lot. Well, and one of the apologetic arg arguments is always, oh, well, church members can obey or not obey or whatever. But talks like this, like, it's not about you can't be a cafeteria Mormon. You can't because mm -hmm. it is strict obedience to every single law. It doesn't matter if you don't think it applies or it's not important or, like you said, it's um, trivial. The other thing that he said was people don't obey commandments because it's too difficult, kind of feeding into this evil apostate fall away from the church because it's just too hard to be a Mormon. Yeah, which I, I don't like. <laughs> yeah, I totally got all of that as well. Yeah, one thing he he talked about uh, the king. I can't remember his name, Rehoboam, I think, and how he uh, by his disobedience he caused ten tribes of Israel to you know lose their inheritance. Oh, that was brutal. It was yeah, Jer Jeroboam. Jeroboam. Okay, I confused yep. those two, but 
Um, so then again, it's your responsibility, you know, to make sure. And I, I got that a lot as a kid, you know. It's up to you that all this stuff, and it's just it's way too much to put on somebody, you know. Yeah, the pressure that not only are you going to lose your uh, eternal life, but you know, all of all of your descendants are going to lose theirs too, which doesn't sound like a very fair God, but okay. <laughs> it it does, as Leanne was saying too. It, it makes. You know, this kind of talk really makes us cafeteria Mormons cringe quite a bit because it's like every single law. I wanted to say to him, do you have any idea how many commandments and laws there are? You know, there's <laughs> and quite a, why there's aren't quite we a... obeying all of them? Because we're not. <laughs> well, and beyond that, you know, the New Testament makes it real clear that it's not about law anymore. So they're totally focusing on things that they claim to, you know, they claim to believe in the New Testament, but... The New Testament, again and again, Paul again and again says that. You're not under law anymore. Well, well, and we're not even following our own laws, because if we were, then we wouldn't eat meat unless it was famine or winter, and we would give tobacco to our cows. Like, we're not following our own laws. Sure, that's a a good point, because I think he was trying to draw the line, and to me, it was one of those talks that, you know, there was there was plenty of faithful members that I think were just cringing like, oh, here comes the guilt, here comes the guilt. <laughs> yeah, totally. Time, time to retreat. That's too bad. Yeah, and then I thought he mentioned the, the Martin Harris, the 116 pages or whatever. And oh, yeah. The the classic Mormon take on that, which is quite different than the, than the South Park take. <laughs> <laughs> and sure. when the Lord commands, do it. This should be our rule as well. Yeah. It's rough. Well, and my wife actually pointed out to me uh, before I came on uh, that when, she, when he's talking about the Lord, he's not, I mean, how do we know what the Lord commands? And that's whatever the prophet says. So what he's really saying is obedience to the church, not obedience to God. Yeah. If you could even yeah. make a distinction somehow. I don't know if you could, but yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Flip, are you? thanks for joining us. You're from Salt Lake City, is that right? I am. In fact, I live about 200 yards from the conference center. <laughs> and uh, did you have any thoughts about Elder Bruce Carlson's talk? He talked about obedience um, and that you should obey all of God's laws, even the ones that are that seem insignificant. Well, yeah, I guess it's, it's sort of the same old thing. Most of the conference today was, you know, I think the first four talks were pretty much be obedient and teach your kids the same. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's nothing really in here that you didn't read in an Ensign article over the last six months. Same old stuff. Be obedient no matter what. And uh, the usual sort of, uh, you know, be obedient and get blessings. Don't be obedient and and get unblessings or <laughs> whatever you call that. <laughs> For the most part, yeah, it was the same kind of old dry stuff. And, I mean, back when I was a faithful member, I would wonder, okay, so when is God going to tell us something new? But I've obviously long abandoned hope that that's ever going to happen. <laughs> what if it happens now that you've given up? Come on. <laughs> well, that, that's the thing. You know what? My my girlfriend was watching with me, and she's not a member. And first time ever watching conference, and she said that prophet seer and Re- revelator thing is. I mean, what do they mean seer? Do they have a crystal ball? And I said, well, actually, no. It's a couple of stones. She said, well, you can't see in stones. And I said, well, yeah, you have to put them in a hat and put your face in the hat. She had no idea what I was talking about, so. I didn't get any laps for that one. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, that is that kind of problem that I had as a member, and I don't anymore, that, you know, 
especially when I was a missionary, and like, there's a prophet on earth, and he's here to tell us things, and it's like, isn't the world in a, in a terrible bind, and couldn't we sure use some, uh, some wisdom from God, and what do we get? You know, go to church, pay your tithing, uh, teach your kids to obey, you know, I mean, it's yeah. sort of the same old thing. Kind of, it must have been fun back in the uh, old days with Brigham Young up there, spouting off all kinds of fun stuff about Adam being God and people living on the moon. Imagine if that was what conference was like. I think they'd have a lot more viewership. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, it's pretty much the, yeah, like I said, an Ensign article compressed. So the concluding speaker was Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, Um, and he talked about these three sisters who met him at the airport um, and they were all recently divorced, whose husbands had cheated on them, and, of course, they got involved with pornography, which seemed to be the cause. Talked about lust being the worst of the seven deadly sins, and then he talked about the bad, the bad internet and the chat rooms and stuff like that. So, Wes, what, what was your thoughts on Elder Holland? So, yeah, this one, to me, was just kind of more of a guilt trip, similar to Carlson's, um... He talked about every time you transgress, you not only hurt the ones you love, but you also hurt Jesus. So you're basically re-crucifying him every time you sin, um, which, you know, I don't think is real helpful. And then, you know, he, he also said that only the name of Christ can save, which totally contradicts statements made by Brigham Young and Joseph Fielding Smith, who said that no one gets in without the consent of Joseph Smith, but they were probably just speaking as a man, so... That was all my thoughts on him. What, what about you, Leanna? What did you think? Well, it was a lot of really faith or fear-inspiring language, like a cesspool, global a cesspool in your brain, like all of this just really fear-inspiring language, which I, I, I don't know. What did you um, say? It, it could blast a crater? What did you say? It, it, it crater, crater in your in brain you? forever. Forever, <laughs> yeah, that's, so... Pretty flowery stuff. Um, what one thing that I was kind of impressed with, because overall, I have to say, I'm just so bored. I had a hard time paying attention because it's the same thing over and over. And sexuality and porn wouldn't be such a big problem if they just had a healthy view of sexuality and let people like know their own bodies and not be so. Anyway, um, but one thing that he did say was, it's not just a problem with men, which was like. As big to me as, because what was it, in Victorian England, they didn't acknowledge female sexuality, and then there was such a thing as female masturbation, it was like, ah! <laughs> so he's actually like admitting that females are sexual creatures, although he didn't say that, he just said it's not only a problem with men, so he implied it. But still, I mean, progress, right? Yeah, I, I, I noticed that, and I wrote that down, too. That surprised me, because most of the time when they do these pornography things, they usually end up being in the priesthood session, and it's usually just implied that it's just men that are are the problem. So that was, I guess women are getting equality in some ways, maybe. Well, I think they <laughs> yeah. have, to, uh, they have to, to explain away the uh, report from last year about Utah having more porn subscribers than any other state in the union, mm-hmm. and... The, <laughs> Since the brethren can't account for all of them, uh, maybe it's some of the sisters that are getting in on the action. Also, if you look up if you look up Google trend searches by state, I think it's porn and sex are like number one in Utah and Idaho, um, which is, I mean, it's just the repressive culture, which 
I mean, of course it's going to blow up somewhere else. And when it blows up, it blows up bad. Because in the secular world, the evil world that we all hate, like pornography is not that big of a problem that men and women divorce over it every day. I mean, okay. it's just... yeah, that, that's the part of it that really bothered me was, I mean, for one thing, assuming the story is anything but apocryphal, you know, that the, the three women all said, and it was porn. Our, our marriage ended when he looked at porn. And does anybody really buy that, 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 that a marriage falls apart over just one single event like that, you know? Who knows what's going on with all that? But it, this oversimplified yeah. view is... Yeah, as a, marriage, as a marriage counselor, I can say it's always got more going on than that. But isn't 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 porn like the marijuana? It's the gateway drug to other problems. <laughs> well, that's why it's, I think it's that, never that. You should just say what you should watch porn with your spouse, and that way. Jeez. <laughs> I uh, maybe maybe I, I wrote what I wrote down was actually that's a self fulfilling prophecy. Uh, maybe you could talk about this, Wes, since you're a marriage counselor. But I see. I mean, you tell a woman that when if her man looks at porn, he's cheating on her, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that that might lead to divorce because she sees it as, you know, some sort well, of huge, you know, like betrayal when it's not necessarily that. So. Well, and two, in a marriage relationship, when you're not allowed to sleep naked next to your spouse, <laughs> lest you're, you know, because there are certain regulations requiring the garments and everything else, and you're not allowed to sleep na- naked next to your spouse, hell, I'd look at porn too. Are you kidding yeah. me? <laughs> yeah, and like you said, it's, it, it, pornography... I mean, when you have very unhealthy attitudes towards sex, it becomes such a big thing. I mean, not to get too personal, but when when I you know thought I had a problem with it, when I was a Mormon, once I became you know no longer a Mormon and didn't see it as a sin anymore, it just I actually ended up doing it a lot less because it it wasn't it didn't become you know a compulsion or I don't know it's interesting. Well, they definitely have that. That same sort of gateway drug attitude that, you know, if, if you ever look sideways at, at a marijuana joint, you're gonna die in a gutter with a needle hanging out of your arm. And if, <laughs> you know, if, if you spend too long staring at the Cosmo magazine in the grocery aisle, you're gonna, you know, end up in a motel room with a t- Thai prostitute. You know, that, the complete non sequitur, like this, I, you know, there's no division in, in their minds between, you know, sort of soft usage and then where it actually becomes a problem. Because undoubtedly there is such a thing as porn addiction or that people, you know, really are damaging their marriages with it. But they don't give that distinction. It's all or nothing. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. And, exactly. Yeah, and to me the bigger issue is just the, the nature of sexuality and the fact that it's not an open topic within the church. That's the biggest problem here. Um, you know, growing up it was pretty much off topic at all for our house and that's a problem you know well you can always go to your bishop and have a really awkward and unsatisfying conversation and leave feeling weirder and worse than ever (laughs) well and you can always have lessons that you know demonize female sexuality so that's fun yeah Yeah. it's just (laughs) not it's not in the context that it is discussed and they're not helpful you know the, the guilt trip conversation with the bishop or any of those other things you know you need to be able to talk about it openly and without shame yeah i, I, I noticed yeah uh, i'm sorry w- without shame isn't something that really comes up a lot in church life i think <laughs> i think yeah. shame comes <laughs> good point yeah <laughs> okay well i i think overall i i i 
I I enjoyed it this this session. I I especially enjoyed it more than I did the AM session. Um, I don't know. I, I overall I thought my you know I I seemed to enjoy it more than I didn't. I I did uh, get kind of frustrated at parts, but overall I thought it was all right. You guys enjoyed your sessions of conference. Some of you guys haven't uh, watched or listened to conference for a long time, so was it good to come back? I mean, are you guys going to be reactivated then? <laughs> um, I would say that's not very likely, but oh. <laughs> maybe you just need someone to send you a postcard. <laughs> that's it. That's it. I'll, I'll do it. Give me your address. I can't wait. <laughs> I, uh, it has been a long time since I've actually actively watched conference, and I got to say, I, I miss uh, when David Haight would get up there and ramble for twenty minutes about how singing is nice. You know, I, I always looked forward. To him, sort of, and you could totally tell they let him off the leash there in the last few years. They just let the the sweet old man kind of get up there and yammer, and uh, I always I always enjoyed that a lot more than all of the hard nosed stoic stuff. But I got to tell you one other just quick thing. My girlfriend at the very beginning was watching it, and you know Dieter Uchtdorf was conducting and saying, you know, we're gonna first we're gonna have the prayer, and then we're gonna have the song, and then we'll have the auditing report. And my girlfriend said, did he say oddity report? And uh, I, I vote next time we have an oddity report, but I think it's going to take more than two hours. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> well, those auditing reports I love. We have evaluated ourselves, and we find that we're good. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, in, we're in charge of you, and we're in charge of their money. We're in charge of your money, and, and you can rest assured that we're spending your money correctly. They always make sure to say, you know, that they're independent, whatever that means. <laughs> oh, and, yeah, that's true. And professionals. Sure. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank each of you, Flip, for joining us, Kyle, for joining us, Leanne, and Wes. I, this was a good time. I really enjoyed you guys joining us on Mormon Expression. Thank you very much. Thank good you. To be here. Good to be here. Anytime. All right. It's time to talk about the priesthood session. Um, tonight we have uh, our good friend uh, Alf, uh, who who did this with me last year. Um, welcome back, Alf. Thanks. And um, it's just me and you. Uh, I had I had two or three other guys who were going to do it, but they all, uh, you know, conked out on me. I guess uh, when you don't have to go to the meeting, you, people don't go. The priesthood session has failed many a priesthood holder for sure. <laughs> That's okay. We we can carry it on our own on our own shoulders. And you know, last last time you'll remember, I I, I said that the priesthood session was the first time I had been to priesthood session in about ten years. And I was a little bit nervous to go. And, you know, I was actually looking forward to it this time. And I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was, and I, ne- I never could say that when I was a member. So I, I, I Well, there's really no pressure it. this time, I guess, huh? Yeah. I, uh, my wife and I were talking about that earlier today. Uh, uh, she was listening to one of the sessions with, with me. And I, I made the observation that when you don't feel obliged to um, agree with everything that's said in conference, conference becomes much more enjoyable. Yeah. And if there happens to be some good advice, go ahead and take it. And there was some good advice tonight, so uh, we can go through the talks. Uh, first, it started with the strange um, opening prayer. Did you keep your eyes open for that guy? I, I he was kind of he was kind of keeping an eye on what was going on, wasn't he? He kept looking up, uh, and I, I swear he was reading his his uh, his prayer. I I wonder. I I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he was looking directly at a prompter or if he was just kind of watching to make sure that he wasn't the only one untranslated yet. I, he kept glancing up. Uh, it was a little bit odd. And he, but he, 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 he wrapped it up without an amen, though, didn't he? He did. He walked away with no amen and threw the whole juju of the meeting off for the first 10 minutes. 
I, I, I watched the, the, uh, my crowd in the, in the chapel there and, you know, guys were looking around and they didn't know what to do without the amen. I eventually there was, there was a, there was a belated amen in our, in our <laughs> chapel, but it was kind of, kind of in an interrogative tone. It, yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing, um, about the same time I was looking down and I noticed that, um, now I, I of course don't attend, uh, only, only a priesthood session, but, um, the hymn books had stamped on them this uh, this edge up. I thought that was really fitting of a church of order that the hymn books are printed wow. with this edge up on the book in case you know somebody puts the book in upside down. So kudos that's, to that's, the, the local congregation for the that's this an edge advanced up. feature we we haven't purchased at our congregation. I guess. It, it, it had clearly been stamped, um, you know, uh, post market. So so that, that there you go. All right, first out of the gate was the one and only Dallin Oaks of the uh, Quorum of the Twelve. You know, uh, before we go there, I wanted to mention I really enjoyed the music in this session. It, it was. It was it was, uh, it was good. And, it, yeah, there was a BYU uh, men's chorus. I, it I, wasn't the men's chorus. It was like a BYU priesthood choir is what yeah, they it was said. Like, so it was I like don't think an, it was the audition group. I actually did belong to the men's chorus back in the 80s. Oh, well, we'll have to have and you. It was Matt Wilberg who was leading it. But um, yeah, he's now leading the, the tab. The Mormon Tabernacle Choir. It seemed like an ad hoc group of just you know whoever was gonna. I don't know how many seats they have up there. A few hundred, so they have to fill them. They, up. they filled them, and it was mostly young men. But I could see there was some some older. So I think it was probably yeah anybody who was in a BYU stake or a leader. You know those those guys who are called to be leaders of those stakes who don't necessarily go to BYU. Um, was my impression. But Ronald Staley led it. He's uh, he's one of the the big choral guys at BYU, and he always does a good job, and I, I like the music, so I wanted to put that in. Yeah, yeah, it was it was an enjoyable part. So Brother Oaks led us out, and um, there was a theme earlier in conference of the the uh, uh, world is out to get us and the world's a scary place, and Dallin came out the gates with that with his uh, worldwide turmoil comment. Um, and he spent the rest of his talk talking about healing the sick, um, right, and he and that was that was his that was his hook. That of course you need this skill in in the modern world where natural disasters are increasing and economic turmoil is deepening. Now, I, I very much enjoyed. Uh, you know, I'm I'm sort of a more secularist, a more scientifically inclined, and I very much enjoyed the way he reconciled science and and reliance on you know modern medicine with a, a, a faithful. Um, um, take on things, you know, which was yeah, basically no, no Christian science here. This is we we believe in both, right? And and he gave the the example that you know you something some Brigham Young said, and you should use what's at your disposal first before you turn to God. God expects us to to you know meet him halfway, and using science and modern medicine was that. So I I really liked the way he worded that together. You know, as an aside, I read that the Christian scientists are kind of backing away from the prayer only approach too. That they're maybe going to allow their their members a little more latitude in in using medical science in addition to just prayer. Yeah, that, so that one would be that's encouraging. Uh, you, you, that would be hard to stick with <laughs> that one, I think. Yeah, it's a big growing gap, sure. Um, and then he talked about. Um, I think he was trying to throw a, a bone to the Christian world because he talked about um, you know just faith and that the all out there. There's people who get healed by faith, and that's not just a Mormon only thing. Yeah, you specifically cited in the instance of a Texas girl whose Protestant congregation prayed for her and she recovered. 
And, and then after that, he talked much, the rest of it was about the priesthood and uh, priesthood blessings and some of the mechanisms of that. But it does leave a certain question begged, which is, if we have science on the one side and we have faith healing on the other side, and then throughout it, he was talking about the will of God, you know, the whole thing that is relying upon the will of the Lord. It kind of is a strange question. What exactly is the priesthood's role in this whole thing? Well, he pretty much excludes priesthood blessings from the role of evidence. There's just no possible way that a priesthood blessing could ever be evidence for or against the existence of God or or or, or manifestation of God's will because, you know, it's really, he, he kind of almost minimized the role of the priesthood holder in the whole process. He's saying that um, it depends on the faith of the healed is one of the biggest things. And of course, the will of the Lord is the other thing. And and if the priesthood holder gets in the middle of all that, well, if he's in, if he's on the wrong side of the equation, it's going to happen the way the Lord intended it anyway. Yeah, yeah. He broke it down to five things. They were what? The anointing, the sealing, the words you say in the prayer, the faith of the one receiving it and the will of the Lord. That's right. And, you know, my thought at the time was I could say there's several things that are need to be rich. You know, one of them is hard work. Second one is diligence. And third is a lot of money. Um, yeah. You start wondering, well, if, if, if God's will is part of the equation, you know, what, what exactly are the rest of the things? But I mean, that's a minor criticism. I, I think overall it was a really um, well done talk on the, the craft of priesthood blessings. Yep. And if God wants you to live, you will. Indeed. Okay, the uh, next guy was the president of the 70s, uh, Roland uh, Rasband. Ronald A. Oh, Rasband. Ronald, Actually, yes, I, yes. I know a relative of his, so that's, that's I, I, I hadn't heard him talk before, I, before ha having known that I knew somebody related to him, but so I paid a little more attention to him than oh, I might have otherwise. Interesting. And, of course, we have to hit the three M's. Do you remember the three M's from last time? <laughs> uh, remind me. Uh, marriage. Uh, missions and masturbation are the three M's that we have talked about at every every priesthood session. So um, Ronald led out with the mission one, um, and he talked about missionary work. Sure did. Um, the most fascinating part was he actually walked us through the process that the brethren used to um, select missionaries. That was that was a vivid story he gave. Yes. So in a nutshell, for those who who weren't there, apparently there is a room that has a uh, at least one member of the twelve. In his example, it was Brother Iring, and one staffer. He said, um, and they have two screens, and on one screen pops up an image of the missionary, and according to um, Ronald here, the member of the twelve greets the missionary and says, "Hello, how are you doing?" That's how Elder Iring did it anyway, and I can imagine. That would be his style, whether or not it's, say, Elder Oaks' style or not. I don't know. Good point. Good point. And then on the other side is apparently an interactive um, screen where they can see the missions. He, he only talked about seeing the missions. I, I, I'm, I'm certain that what they're seeing is the vacancies in the missions. Right. Um, yeah. So that they can then place the missionary to the, um, to the mission um, Vacancy. Yeah, and the staffer was from the uh, mission department, too, so I'm sure they'd, they'd know what their—they'd be concentrating on what their personnel needs are. But I, I guarantee you if an apostle wants to send an elder to a mission that doesn't think they need anybody, he's going there anyway. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. That I think the most interesting thing coming out of that was, you know, there's sort of— we talk in Book of Mormon about the loose translation versus tight translation, and you could take the same um, approach to Revelation, 
loose revelation versus tight revelation. And uh, Ronald was giving a more tight revelation sort of uh, model here that they were getting very specific answers, meaning, you know, young... Well, El- mainly, mainly Elder Iring was. Elder Iring was, yeah, because he talked about Elder Iring correcting him. Um, if he didn't, if he didn't get it just right, so he presented it as if, um, you know, it, it was very interactive between the um, senior apostle and and the Lord, and this wasn't sort of a loose guidance thing. This was this was this was very much um, uh, a tight process, which is, I'm sure, how Elder Iring perceives it. So, and maybe it's maybe somebody else in the quorum would perceive it a little differently. I don't know. The, the only problem I had with the story is there's, what, about 50,000 missionaries out there? Um, right. And uh, th- that roughly breaks down to about 500 a week. And I, I've been told before, I don't know where I got the information, that they do this on one day. Um, you know, all the missionaries come in and they assign them to the openings. That's about 500 missionaries a day. Um, well, now, you have 50,000 out at any one time. Right, yeah. So I'm, I'm saying if Each you, of them is, is, is out for a couple of years. Right, but if you so take the 50,000... So your weekly new, new total needs to, needs to be uh, enough to replenish that every two years. Right, right. And if you took that number and assumed, it, assumed a constant number of missionaries, it would be roughly about 500 a week to, to replenish you know, um, uh, the, the outgoing missionaries. Actually, you're right. Now that I'm doing the back of the envelope, you're right. It's right in the neighborhood of 500. So, so I mean, they'd have to be moving along at a pretty good clip. That's <laughs> my only point. Uh, I don't. I don't think they have a lot of time for uh, talking to the picture very much. You know? If they meet once a week, no. If if they met, you know, more than once, or if it was somehow, you know, done in parallel, if more than one apostle was taking a batch at a time, I don't know. Yeah, you, you'd think they'd have to get some sort of efficiency because if it's taking more than one day a week, you know, they're spending 20, 40 percent of their time just doing that. That would get cumbersome. But it's nice to know that there's um, thought going invo- involved, you know, because they very well could write a computer program that says these are the slots. These are the missionaries, you know, press enter and there it goes. Yeah. Yep. I'd be tempted to set up such a program if I were in charge. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sure you're not the only one. And, and, and consider that a very loose s- sort of revelation, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, God's in the machine, right? That's right. Okay, the next um, was David Beck. He's the Young Men's General President. Uh, do you know, I was going to look it up, but I didn't. Is he any relation to Julie Beck? I don't know that, no. Oh, well. That would that would seem to be, uh, I, 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 I would bet they're from the uh, same extended family. I mean, it's a, it's a Mormon name, Martha Nibleybeck, for example. Yes, yes. To, to, to call up a black sheep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, those, it's those young women who give us problems. You know, Fawn Brody, Fawn McKay Brody. Right. <laughs> Martha Nibleybeck. All right. He, he talked about um, the Aaronic Priesthood. And mentioned the new the new Duty to God Award, which I guess they're rolling out in June. He wasn't the only one. It was mentioned in earlier sessions. Um, I he guess... called it the Duty to God Program. So I don't know if it's just targeted toward that scouting kind of award or if it's a more, you know, encompassing ironic priesthood program, whether or not you're connected to the uh, scout program. If it's still the way it was when I was a youth, um, you know, there's the scout program and then every faith group like the Methodists or the Presbyterians, each have their own religious medal. And this was the religious medal um, for the scouting program that the Mormon Church sponsored. But it sounds like they're expanding that program quite a bit from what just what I've gathered in conference. Something like that, yeah. I don't know what the details are, and they haven't made it public yet. I think they said June is when local bishops will be receiving the materials. Um, uh, uh, 
Brother Beck's theme was, you know, you'll learn, you will experience things, you will learn to appreciate this, that, the other. It was, uh, I mean, it was a nice little talk, mostly unremarkable. I, I didn't. It was, it was a, it was cheerleading for the, for the ironic priesthood, and you can do it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the next one was a, a Dieter Uchtdorf, um, who is, of course, the star of the uh, quorum, as far as I'm concerned. The man knows how to speak. Um, when I normally listen to conference, I'm, I'm generally listening through what they're saying, um, you know, trying to make connections. But he's one of the few I actually will get engaged in what he's saying. And, and You let him drive while he's talking? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, he, he's, he's an excellent speaker. He's excellent at making a point. And, and I thought as, as his talk was wrapping up, maybe this is one of the reasons I liked it. You could easily take it out of conference and play it just about anywhere. And the themes are universal. It's not real tied to like, um, you know, Mormonism from Pace in Utah. Yeah, not necessarily. There are specific examples that only work in Mormonism, but yeah, the the structure, the 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 overall theme, certainly would play in a larger audience. And of course, his talk was about patience. Now, um, he brought up an example at the beginning where he was talking about a scientific study with a marshmallow they put in front of four-year-olds, and um, they they wanted to see. They gave it 15 minutes to see. They told the four-year-old that if they waited 15 minutes, they'd get another marshmallow if they didn't eat the marshmallow. And I guess the study showed that only 30% of the four-year-olds could wait. Most of them just scarfed it down right away or only waited a couple minutes. But the interesting fact was the um, professor who'd done the study sort of followed the four-year-olds in a longitudinal way and found that it was a predictor of success in life. The kids that could wait when they were four, um, they... Uh, they were better suited. They didn't have as many problems and da-da-da-da-da. The only reason I—go ahead, go ahead. No, no, yeah, I think we're headed the same way here. It's kind of troubling that something like that, that you can measure at four years old, determines your success in life, you know, if, particularly if you consider eight the uh, age of accountability. Uh, precisely what I was going to say. Um, you know, I, I, I think it was a counterpoint to what he was trying to say, which is we can learn patience and— but it, it would seem from his example that patience is sort of installed in us. And by the time you're four, if it's predicting how you're going to act in life, uh, probably there's not much you can do about that uh, later in life. Yeah, if it's a disposition, um, then yeah. I, I, it, this, is, this is an interesting area in, from any perspective, free will and determinism and, and so forth. Um, uh, just from a secular perspective, it's you, you got to recognize you're never really going to adjudicate the, uh, the, the absolute determinist question, I think, because there's really no outside view to, to be uh, grabbed. I'm not sure I stated that very well. No, I, I, I'm with you, brother. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you're, you're within the system. If, you, if you're trying to determine if you're, if you're determined, then you're determined to determine that. Exactly. Uh, so it's yeah, it's one of those things. It's not an interesting question because even if we are, we probably don't don't know it and uh, have no way to figure it out. And how would we behave differently if we knew we were? So exactly, you could take his talk as an address to the seventy percent who did not, um, who would not have been capable of of waiting the fifteen minutes. As you know, here's some coaching for how to try to get yourself nudged in that thirty percent direction. You may not have it from from birth, but um, it's important enough that you ought to act. Like it's something that's in your disposition, and and here are some thoughts on that subject. I'm pretty sure I would have taken the marshmallow right away. I <laughs> I I'm, think I might have waited, but at four, who knows? Now he he did return to the well of his um, youth experience as a refugee. 
Um, yeah, he didn't dwell on it as much as six months ago, but um, yeah, it was certainly another. He at ten moved to West Germany as a refugee and and incited his educational experience, which was a big theme in his last talk too, last priesthood session talk. And he gave another example, which I thought was a little odd. Uh, his he talked about when he's an Air Force pilot um, doing training that he was a little troubled by the fact that there were smokers and drinkers who could outperform him. And he did acknowledge that that gave him a little trouble, a little pause about the word of wisdom during the time. But he never really said what his solution to the problem was. He just said later he saw things that confirmed it, but he didn't tell us what those things were. He seemed to think that uh, he had confirmation that later in life, even though these uh, smokers and drinkers may have outperformed him in that uh, running instance while he was training, that long-term their non-word of wisdom observance didn't stand them in good stead over the long term. And I guess that's a, you know, performance on running laps isn't necessarily the final and best test of whether a, a dietary code is, is the best way to live. That's true. But anyway, overall, his uh, talk on patience was uh, uh, well-received by this fella in the pews. Yep. All right. Uh, next up was uh, Henry Eyring of the First Presidency. Um, his talk was on diligence. Um, he again brought up the duty to God and um, mostly it was just sort of an unremarkable Henry Eyring talk, as far as I was concerned. I I tried to take a lot of notes as I was going along. I just didn't find many hooks to write down for, for uh, President Eyring's talk. I wrote some scriptures that he cited, and um, I, I tried to make a note about a story about him meeting with a sick friend, but it really ended up uh, not not having any particular details that, that stood out to me that were worth really <laughs> sharing, I guess. I, I like Elder Iring personally. He's somebody I'm sure I would get along with great in person. Um, he's, and and I, I enjoy just his, his, I like listening to him for his company, but I'm not sure I can share anything from his message that struck me um, durably. Yeah, I agree. He's been one of my favorites to listen to for a long time. I, I remember once I was at a BYU devotional or fireside and um, I sat on the backside, which you can do at BYU devotionals, and he, his whole talk, you know, you always see them from the top up. He had his hands in his pockets, which I thought was, oh. was sort of a, a, ho a homey um, sort of way to do it. So I've always pictured him with his hands in his pockets since then. Huh. Yeah, the only thing I, I really took notes on was at the end, he was talking about diligence, and he talked about um, remembering the Savior in sort of a you know, that uh, Jesus suffered extremely. So whenever that he thought he was tired or he hadn't done enough, that he should remember the Savior. And he said, do not finish, do not stop. And it was kind of a, uh, that's sort of a Mormon theme that, you know, when you've done all you can, just keep doing it. There's more to do and more to do and more work. And, and uh, uh, I thought that was a little bit noteworthy um, just because it's a theme that comes up and, you know, some people struggle with it a little bit. Well, and diligence is was his topic, so diligent people are the ones who would who would uh, resonate with that. Yeah, and you know, of course, the, from the way the Mormon structure works, you're going to get the type A sort of guys who raise to the top, and they're going to be the type who really value that sort of hard work and you know making things it work happen. for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, bringing it home for the uh, for the team was uh, President Monson and. Um, you know, he, he's, he was, uh, he was engaged and, um, you know, normally because of the Mormon structure where you're the last man standing becomes the president of the church, 
Oftentimes, the uh, prophet at any given time is infirmed or incapable of delivering a powerful message. But he he seemed to be sort of lively. Um, yeah, no, he hasn't um, he hasn't lost his faculties yet, as far as I could say. He, and he seems to be basically in infirm control. I know this is petty, and maybe I'm the only one in the world. He's got this little lizard tongue thing that he does, um, <laughs> where he he pops his tongue out all the time. I think he's licking his lower lip or something, but it, it became a little distracting for me. I've noticed that with a number of, of older people. I remember a woman in my ward when I was growing up who just all the time seemed to have to lick her lips when she was talking, and it may just be dry mouth or something. I don't know. And I don't mean to be too critical. I mean, <laughs> I, if I was up there in front of the 25,000 people or whoever in that conference center with those lights shining down on you and the cameras. I'm sure we'd find a tick of yours, too. <laughs> it would be different. on. Yes, definitely. Um, his, his talk, he mentioned the strength of the youth pamphlet um very early on and he sort of followed that sort of thing talked about dating talked about honesty um that sort of thing word of wisdom purity of heart don't misuse god's name yeah pretty yeah. much all the all the youth standards yeah he, he did he did mention again tattoos and piercing um although he didn't get as specific on um no. dress for girls as they did in the first session but uh did talk about that um I did think one interesting uh, phrasing I hadn't heard, but it's probably right out of the youth pamphlet, and I haven't um, read that recently. He he said, in cultures where dating is appropriate, date no earlier than 16. Yes, Which it, I guess when you're addressing a worldwide audience, you have to make some some concession to the possibility that there are cultures that behave somewhat differently than ours. Yeah, that is out of, I've, I've actually seen that language. It is out of the pamphlet, but, but you're right. It does show a more cultural sensitivity than you would see in the material from the 60s, I would suppose. Um, and he did kind of hint at that, hey, you don't have to feel pressured to date. You know, and he gave the standard dating advice, which is no dating to your 16, date in groups, date people you want to marry. Um, he did say date um, people, don't date people with lower standards than yourselves. But hey, if it wasn't for that, people like me would never get a date. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Clearly, clearly, I've, we've heard both sides of that that topic because it's a common theme among the general authorities that they married up. So you know, where does that leave them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, I guess that their wives didn't follow the advice. Right. Um, so, word of wisdom. Uh, talked about spiritual and physical well-being. He did group in um, coffee and tea with the uh, with the others, suggesting that they had an adverse. Um, health effects, which is kind of dicey these days, and you won't catch an apologist doing that, but he did. It's it's harder to establish from secular standards. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, music, this is from the strength of the youth, the music where they, they insinuate the tempo alone, tempo and beat. Tempo, um, beat, and lyrics can dull spiritual sensitivity. I, I can see lyrics, and I guess, you know, I, I heard a Lady Gaga song yesterday for the first time, and I guess I know where they're coming from. But playing really fast, I mean... Paganini and uh, Brahms, you know, those. there's a lot of really fast music written by some, some composers. I can't imagine tempo is really going to make much of a difference. It's it's a little weird. It's a little hard to make the case, and I I, I don't know. I, I, I guess, when you know, when I was a young person in, in um, Utah, there were quite a few, I think most of the youth in the church, you know, pretty well stayed clear of drugs and alcohol and, and sex, you know, as, as more than you'd expect average youth. But we pretty much listen to whatever we want to listen to, so so that's kind of the the loose cannon there, I guess. Well, there's always something to improve on, I guess, huh? And if you have any, I, I, maybe maybe this is from the pamphlet too, but he he kind of 
uh, had a rather hard line on if you have any question about book, movie, or music, just don't. Which I, it seems a little impoverishing, I would think. Yeah, the you know the problem is if you if you don't want to expose yourself to anything that might um, you know be outside your sensitivities, you're going to cut yourself off from a whole world of music, of literature, of you know, art of, of all kinds, you know, art, great art in all its forms, oftentimes challenges, it's challenging yeah. in, in some way. And we, we come away better by looking at something and saying, you know, that's something I hadn't thought about. It's something I hadn't considered. And I, I think that there are, there's a whole faction of LDS people who cut themselves off and won't see anything over a PG rating and they won't read things that, that might have something controversial. And they're really coming out the poorer for that. Yeah, there's a, it's kind of a utilitarian strain in um, Mormon thought that considers that anything that is in the humanities is basically optional. Right. That, you know, maybe music's fine, but if it push came to shove, we could all give up music entirely. So any music you listen to, if there's any possible question, then just cut it off altogether and you will not be any worse off. It's all optional. And 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 I just, that... That is a pity. And, and I think that in general, most people do not behave according to that, that dictum. You know, if you really want to um, pursue a, a, uh, an artistic uh, endeavor, something that sometimes pushes moral boundaries, you know, you can insulate yourself by recognizing that it's not you. It's, 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 a, it's art. And um, I, think, I think a lot of, some Mormons may be short themselves in that regard, but I think a lot of Mormons recognize that in practice, um, you know, they, there's, there's a lot to be, a lot to be tested and tried. And, and so I guess, you know, it's a big church. There, people react differently. And it's a hard thing to do. My kids are still small, but they're, they're, they're getting to be pretty internet savvy. And of course the, the world is awash in whatever you want. Now, <laughs> my attitude is that that stuff's always been around. I mean, there's been you know, prostitution and whatever, you know, the first pornographic image probably came shortly after they invented cave painting, but, um, you know, it's always been there, but it's so readily available. It's a difficult thing for the church and the church has the problem where, um, they have set a really high standard, um, for worthiness that as, as especially men have high access to pornographic material. And just out of a, a, a curiosity, you know, somebody might go and encounter some material and then find themselves feeling very unworthy. And, and it almost is a manufactured spiritual crisis where somebody who didn't have that sort of thought might look at it and say, oh, that's kind of smutty. I don't like that stuff. And then they come back a month later and look at it again. And, but th they just get on with it. You know, they just, they just live their life where it might be something that for an LDS person becomes a, a crisis. There's something to be said for lowering the stakes. You know, it's a lot easier to, I, I'd, I'd say if, if you don't have this whole freighted um, expectation of, of purity and worthiness and confession that, that has to go along with, with um, uh, failure, uh, you know, you, it's harder to change direction in, in, in some ways. You, you can, if, if you make a mistake and you don't have, you know, the entire church to repent to, then it's just easier to... <laughs> change on your own i in my opinion yeah yeah and you know and one of my pet peeves long we're talking about that has always been if the church doesn't want people to masturbate they should just say masturbation 
And of course, I think he had a veiled reference when he used the word um, self-control. I think he was talking about masturbation. That's probably a pretty good bet. Uh, you know, and they should just come out and say it, you know. Uh, 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 it's not the 19th century anymore. Just say it, you know. But, oh well. Yeah, well, I mean, just, just as well they don't because maybe, maybe, maybe this is the way that they start de-emphasizing it. I don't know if, if that, you know, veiled language eventually allows them to drop it altogether. Um, I don't know if that's ever in our future, but, um, you know, that's the way it could happen. I think the veiled language creates more of a problem because you get a lot of people wondering about it. And I think the church has gone out of its way to not take a stand on it. <laughs> you know, that if you go read all the stuff about like what's an excommunicable or, or punishable offense, they specifically never mention that. So, well, their, their stances don't, but the, the consequences are pretty well implicit. Yeah. Are, are vague um, because we've all heard stories of people who have had penalties and people who haven't. So, um, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd prefer if they came out and were, were more clear on that. I, I think, you know, they don't want to give all the youth a blank check for whatever reason. And then I, they, I guess they like the vagueness for some reason, you know. Yeah, vagueness works in their favor because the people who are most apt to take things seriously will go ahead and take it as seriously as possible. And those who are not won't be offended and leave the church because they're, they're held to the same standard that those who take it seriously are. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I mean, pornography, it's its a problem. It's a social ill, I suppose. And, um, you know, and the, the rest of his stuff is generally good advice. So kudos to nope. uh, President Monson. All right, well, that was the priesthood session. I mean, there, was, there wasn't anything real earth-shattering in there. Um, just uh, your run-of-the-mill priesthood session. Although President Monson did say it was one of the best he'd ever heard. Yes, he he started that way. He said one of the finest general priesthood meetings he's ever attended. So and, and he's been to quite a bit. So uh, he, he he's got one of, one of the longest memories in the in the building for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, he can probably recite them. So yeah, that's so. right. <laughs> All right. Well, it was it was it was fun uh, talking it through with you again, Alf. And um, let's see, we're we're going to be bringing you back here in a couple weeks to talk about the um, statistics. Uh, yeah, mark your calendars for that, ladies and gents. <laughs> All right. Well, have a good night. It's late for us. We're both on the East Coast, and it's pushing midnight. So so we, we took one for, for all you guys out there. Happy to do it. 